faithfulness is something that you and I really value, right? Loyalty and devotion are two things we look for in a spouse, in a friend, in a business partner, and in employees. We desire this personality trait in people because it is an important virtue, but also because at some point in our lives, we have all felt the pain that comes when someone isn't faithful to you. Maybe it's something as simple as someone not having your back like you would have had theirs. The feeling that a friend doesn't have the same level of loyalty to you that you have to them is a painful thing. For some of you, the sting of betrayal goes much, much deeper than that. You found that someone you trusted to be faithful was not, and it is likely a pain that will never go away. It will be something that whenever you experience a thought that recalls that to your mind, you will be able to go right back to that. You'll feel that pain in the pit of your stomach that you have had all along and and since it happened. Because faithfulness is so important. It's important that we not only have it, but we know what it's like when it's not there. But the opposite is also true. There are moments when you discover that there is a person who is loyal, and they will have your back. There are those relationships that you look back upon after years and years of faithfulness. And instead of pain like you have when you're betrayed, that feeling of faithfulness gives you a sense of peace. Loyalty and faithfulness are the bedrock of human relationships. And when that foundation is strong, the relationships stand. And when it crumbles, relationships fall apart. And we return to the book of Genesis this week, and we're going to see the faithfulness of God. That unlike our human fragile relationships, God is faithful to his promise. And so we return now to the book of Genesis, and we're at the end of Abraham's life. And we're going to see what we have seen so many times in the book of Genesis so far. The steadfast love and faithfulness of God for his covenant people. His faithfulness does not fail. Now, I've already put you to sleep because we read a hefty chunk of text this morning. I'm guessing that if you saw how many verses we were going to read today before you got here, you thought about not coming to church. You know how many people came up to me when they were proofreading the bulletin? Are you sure that's not a typo? No, that's it. You probably saw it, or in the middle of me reading it, you thought, how many points will this guy have in 67 verses? He usually has three. I set set dinner to be ready at 11.15. Maybe you have an app on your phone, folks. I'd set it for about 4.30, because here we go. No, we're not going to be breaking down the text into any points today. If you're worrisome about that, let me ease your mind. We're not going to be looking at any minutia. Instead, we're going to be looking at this beautiful story and use it to bring us back into that unfolding story that we've been thinking about in the book of Genesis as we've been journeying through the book. Now, as I've shared before, I plan out where we're going in advance quite quite a bit. Like, I look ahead to where we're going to be in the different... uh, 
passages and plan it out. I plot out how to break up the longer books so that you know, it doesn't bear us out so much. I try to match up the public readings of Scripture so that they end at the same time. I, I put a lot of work into it. And at the end of the year, usually about November-ish or December, I submit all that to the elders so they can see it. It's a process I do far enough in advance of actually preaching that sometimes I get to the text when I'm preparing and I wondered why I stopped there, right? And I kind of had that this week, and then I remembered how I came to the decision to do all 67. Uh, I often take a couple days uh, in October. I go to Inspiration Hills because pastors can get a room cheap there, and I plot this kind of stuff out. And I remember sitting at the table in the room going, where do I break this one up? Because it's one beautiful story. And so after a while of laboring and putting it at different spots, I remembered something important. That this was the way that the people who heard it for the first time would have heard it. And that's the point I'm trying to drive home because sometimes it's good to take a look at a few verses, but there are other times where big passages are meant to be absorbed and taken in together. Because remember, the the book of Genesis was meant to be heard. The ancient Hebrew people couldn't point their web browser to Amazon or Reformation Heritage Bookstore and order a copy of the book of Genesis. They couldn't go to Barnes & Noble, pick up a copy of Genesis, go sit down in the Starbucks and have a cup of coffee while they started it, right? That's not how it was. There weren't a lot of copies of this because they had to copy them by hand. There would have been limited copies of these true stories of their family heritage, but so many of the people would have had it memorized. And you can, you can notice that. It's clear from when we read it, one of the reasons we read through the whole thing, is notice the repetition. Some of the things are say, said multiple times. When you're in the Old Testament and stuff is repeated that way, that's one of the reasons. They were doing it so that the people who were the original audience could have recall points for memorizing it. And so, this story can't be broken up in the way other stories can be because it's not meant to be broken up. That's why we're forgoing points and outlines this morning and just thinking about this story that we've been drawn into, about the child of the promise, the big story in Genesis. Now, we can never read this book of Genesis as the original audience did, but we desire to feel the tension that they felt and the hopes that they received from the book of Genesis. Why? Because in Christ, they are our family. Their desire for redemption is our desire for redemption. Their hope in the Messiah, who will crush the head of the serpent, that's our hope too. And as we learned in the book of Hebrews, these people that we're reading about, they were seeking the same city that we are seeking. And so we come to the story of Isaac and Rebekah this morning to see the story of salvation as it continues to unfold. Now to immerse ourselves in this, we need to refresh our memories a little on how the book of Genesis has unfolded for us thus far. We had the creation of all things, and the creation was very good, but our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They fell into sin, and that fall was devastating and absolute. All those who would come after them would feel the effects of their rebellion against the Holy One. But the most important part of the story is that God did not abandon His creation, and He did not wipe them out. 
Instead, God immediately, right there in the garden, He made a promise that the seed of the woman would come eventually. From the seed of the woman, a child would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then as an act of mercy and an act of grace, God made clothes of skin to cover the shame and nakedness that their sin had caused. Blood was shed to make those garments And that was pointing us to the blood of Jesus, the snake crusher. He was going to shed his blood for the people to cover our sin and our shame. And so as the story unfolded in Genesis, we followed the line of the Messiah through the family that comes after Adam and Eve. Now remember, there were those who were in the godly line, and they were faithful, and we knew them as the children of God. But we also see those who continue in rebellion against God, And we also see those ones who are in rebellion. We remember their names. Cain, right? His family was not the godly line, and they were seen as servants of the serpent. And we saw those even after Noah. The way they split up, they were the servants of God, the children of God, and the children and the servants of Satan. And that's the tension between Abraham, the one who is in the line to the child of promise, and the Canaanites. And so here's the tension that we've been feeling through the entire book of Genesis. Will the child of the promise ever come? Or will the serpent win? Will the serpent prevail? That's the tension in the text in Genesis. And so, we came to Abraham, remember? He's the great hero of the faith. He was in the godly line. He was wonderful. He followed God. And God promised that he would have a child with his wife Sarah. But remember, she was old, and he was old, and she was barren. And remember that theme I kept coming back to. And it's important as we look at this text today, and it's important that we remember it as we continue through Genesis. The story of Abraham and Sarah having a child was not a comeback story. It wasn't about being down to the last wire and there's going to be a comeback. No, the idea in that story was that it was a resurrection story. They were old. And Sarah's womb was barren. It was death. They needed a resurrection. And so the tension that we feel throughout Genesis is that the promise of God to bring the Messiah is in jeopardy. But every time, God comes through and the promise is fulfilled. That's what we're meant to feel throughout the book of Genesis and in this story today. And it's so important that as we continue to feel this tension we get to know the next guy in the story, Isaac, as we see him in Genesis 24. Now, when we left off with the death of Sarah in Genesis, we saw that Isaac is an adult. And the story continues, and we naturally ask the question, who's next? Abraham is old. And there still isn't a continuation of the promise. There's no next child. And Abraham is once again asked to view the promise from far off. He's asked to believe that it's going to come without him seeing it. And the tension that that we feel here in this story is that Abraham, Abraham is still in a pagan land. The people around him are not only not of the godly line, but we've seen their rebellion and sin. They're the servants of the serpent, not the servants of God Most High. He can't take a wife for Isaac from among those people here because then the line would be polluted. And so now Abraham, at the end of 
his life makes a request of his most trusted servant. God is sending him to find a wife for his son from his country and his kindred. Now this isn't a distaste for his neighbors. It's about the line to the promised one. And this request made by Abraham is significant here. And we can see this in the fact that Abraham asks him to swear by the Lord. And he also has him do something rather odd to our 21st century sensibilities. When I read this in the text, you probably wondered, what in the world is that about? He asked him, his servant to put his hand under his thigh. Now, we don't really know how common this practice was or precisely what it means. But we do know that the loins were considered the center of vitality and the center of procreation. And so this concern isn't that Isaac hasn't found his soulmate yet. Oh, I, Abraham, wish for my son to have a happy life with his wife. And if they just happen to have children, it won't matter. No, that's not what this is about. What they're concerned about is having the next child, the promise. The goal here is fulfilling the promise of God, not finding marital happiness. And so as we progress through the story, as we look at verse 7 here, we see that he has this servant give this solemn oath. And this servant isn't so sure how it's going to work out. God is going in front of Abraham, though, Abraham says, and he'll prepare the one who will be Isaac's, Isaac's wife. Once again, we're seeing the faith of Abraham here. And it's amazing. He has learned that God will provide and he will trust in God instead of taking this on his hands by himself and just grabbing a woman from nearby. Doesn't matter if she's a Canaanite or not. Doesn't matter if she's from the line of the promise. He is going to just do this on his own. That's not what's happening. He's trusting God to provide. And so what happens here? This faithfulness of God has rubbed off on the servant because we see his prayer in verses 12 and 14. The servant trusts that God will provide, and so he says how he will know she is the one. And we read this in the story. God provides. And as we look at verse 15 and 16, we see who this young lady is. It's Rebecca. Now, you have to love the way the story is told here. The author of Genesis uses her name because we know who she is already. And the Hebrew people hearing this story for the first time knew her name. They know they're descended from Isaac and Rebekah. And so the story is told in such a way that we're excited to hear her. Imagine knowing who your ancestor is and that Isaac needs a wife. And the story comes, imagine your child hearing the story for the first time saying, it's Rebekah. It's Rebecca. They know the story. They know. And we know who she is. She's in Abraham's family, and she's Isaac's wife. And, and so we have found her. We found the one. She is in the line. She's in the godly line. And we see that there's more that we need to know about her. She's beautiful. And she is a maiden who has known no man. Why is this important? Not only is she seen as pure and set apart, but there will be no doubt in this description of her that the next child of the promise is from Isaac. That's why it's important that she is pure. She's never been with a man. And let's not forget that so much of what we read about in Genesis is pointing us forward to Jesus because he is the final fulfillment of all this, right? 
And so this statement about Rebecca also ultimately points us to the virgin conception of Jesus and his being born of the Virgin Mary. And we see that Rebecca is also a willing servant, also pointing forward to the willingness of Mary. And her, her Rebecca, and her family agree that, that, they will go on this, or that she will go on this journey with Abraham's servant. And so we jump way ahead to the end of the story. Verses 49 and 51. It says here that the family shows steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham by allowing this to happen. And that is an important theme that we have seen so often in Genesis. The steadfast love of God. A love that does not fail. And here we see the servant asking for Rebecca and her family to show the same to Abraham. And the big idea that we're meant to see in this passage is that God is in control. Just as he ordained the path for Isaac to be born as the child of the promise, God is now ordaining the path for the next child of the promise to be born. The story is continuing. As Rebecca and her family show steadfast love and faithfulness, the Lord is showing his steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham and all the covenant people of God. And this story of Rebecca's love and God's faithfulness to his covenant people concludes with the bride and the groom coming together as we look at verses 64 through 67. You see what she sees here. Her future husband is in the distance, and she covers her face. Now, it was customary at that time for the groom to not see the bride until after they had consummated their marriage. And while covering her face doesn't mean much to us, it's significant to the people who are reading this at the first, for the first time. It's showing us that once again, Rebecca is pure. It also shows us her willingness to be Isaac's bride. Isaac and Rebecca have come together. And it is the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that has brought these two together. The promise of God is continuing. His steadfast love and faithfulness is not going to fail. And as we close up today, that's the message that we want to drive home from this story. We have been drawn back into the drama of redemption in Genesis. And the big story for the people of God, who are the original audience of this book, is the same story for us, the people of God, now. We're being drawn into this story because now we are the covenant people of God along with the people who were reading it back then. And that message is that God is faithful to keep his promise of salvation to his people. That's the big story. It's vital that we remember this truth and let it inform how we love God and how we love one another. As we come back and we look at the story of Isaac and we look at the story of Jacob in Genesis, we're going to see this theme over and over again. And it's a theme that continues down to us today. We know the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, because we have been blessed with the gift of faith to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And today, we are extraordinarily blessed because we have a sign and a seal of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God sitting before us. It's laid out right there for us to see in the Lord's Supper. In this meal, we taste and see that the Lord is good. God showed his steadfast love and faithfulness in the work of Jesus for us when the wrath of God 
For our sin and unbelief was satisfied at the cross. And so we trust that in the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in this meal, we are continually being shaped and formed by the Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. God is at work in us. We saw in the story of Isaac and Rebekah that God was at work. He was working behind the scenes. Even though it seemed impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child, God was at work. Even though it seems impossible that Isaac would be able to find a, a fitting bride from the, chi- from the line of the child of the promise, God is at work. He is in control. He is the one who is doing it. And so when we feel, when we question whether or not God is at work, we can know for sure that he in fact is. And so today, as we take the meal, may we remember the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Because this is a sign and a seal that we, along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are his covenant people. Amen.